0: off last week on his discussion about redemption i thought this is a important topic Uh, there's a whole lot of theology around it that he's talking about and referencing that a lot of us probably don't get so today i'm going to give you another crash course on substitutionary atonement and how redemption how that word how that particular word has often been described in Christian theology. Now, in the last video I went into talking about Greek and Roman understandings of redemption and how that was understood in a slavery context. So you would buy somebody's freedom or trade a slave for a slave. That was the Greek and Roman way. How did it end up taking off in Christianity? And then we'll look at Bonhoeffer and we'll we'll get to him a a little bit later in the video as we look at his reconstruction of it. So last time he basically argued that redemption isn't about uh, the life after death. It isn't about being saved from a bad life after death to a good life after death, or as he calls it, the barrier of death. It's about this life now, but what does that look like? So again, he doesn't give us a systematic answer, but he hints at it. So let's let's delve into this a little bit, uh, talking about what redemption is and what it might mean, and um, and to so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a recap of what they call classical atonement theory. If you don't know it, I'll move over so we can get the slides up here. But it's probably you've probably heard the language used in various ways, but probably not in the way you think it is. Uh, when I was growing up, you know, I always thought that you know God forgives us our sins because He loves us. So, those who ask for forgiveness and change their ways are forgiven by God because God is a loving God who forgives people. And that's what Jesus said forgive us 70 times seven. And that made sense. Then, as a Lutheran, I grew up being taught that we are justified by grace through faith, which meant that we cannot earn God's forgiveness by doing, quote, works. Uh, You know, you can't get enough, you can't get forgiveness by saying enough Hail Marys or something. And uh, that made perfectly good sense, but what always, what always I struggled with was then, where does the cross fit into this? If God just forgives those who, change, who confess their sins and change their ways, why does Jesus need to die? Uh, or is His death have anything to do with that? How does the cross lead to forgiveness of sins if God just forgives my sins? Well. I had had stumbled into a theological black hole. I ended up taking a whole class on it, a graduate-level class just on these atonement theories, and found that my problem is not a new problem, and nor am I the only one who has this problem. And then I discovered, as I dug deeper and deeper, that the ways in which we understand redemption aren't always necessarily from the Bible. So, uh, but we'll get to that. Let's look at classical atonement theory here for a minute. I I have a big gigantic bunch of bullet points here, so I thought that might help. We'll walk walk you through that a little bit. But here's how the story goes in the traditional way that's been taught since the Middle Ages. It starts out with the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve, uh, they live in paradise, they eat the fruit, and now they have the knowledge of good and evil. And so then they have sinned, and so then they get kicked out of the garden, and as the theory goes, sin entered the world. Now, if you read the beginning of Genesis, it doesn't say sin entered the world. It doesn't even say they sinned. It doesn't say that the fruit came from the devil. It was just a, some sort of mythical talking serpent thing. Uh, that language was added later, <clears throat> but that's how the theory goes. So we were without sin, we ate the fruit, now sin entered the world. And uh, and because and it's just a permanent state and we're locked into it almost like genetics. Uh, so now there's nothing you can do to be without sin. You, you can make yourself better, but you're never going to be free of it. It's just, it's baked into you. So that's the fall, right? That's the fall. Uh next because of sin God is full of wrath God is mad about that sin and because, and God because God is just insists that someone must be punished for the sin sin must be punished it cannot just be forgiven there has to be a punishment you can't just you can't just forgive that's how it goes. So every single person everywhere in the entire world is destined for eternal hellfire because we sin. Now, again, you may not be able to not sin, but you're destined for hell anyways because it, be, it just wouldn't be right and fair and just for a price not to be paid. That's the language, price to be paid price to be paid it's not in the Old Testament, but that's how the theory goes, right? So you're in this mind as a person. You can't not sin, but you are destined to hell for it. Well, wow, that's a nice thing. Uh, so now what do you do? The next point then becomes somebody must be paid for God to let go of all that wrath the wrath can't ju- god can't just let go of his wrath he's full of wrath seething with wrath but the wrath can't just be let go of the only way to let go of the wrath is somebody has to be punished no punishment no getting rid of the wrath but right so it means either we all go to eternal hellfire as a punishment for all that sin or Somebody steps in and takes the punishment for us. See where this is going? So, God could not just forgive you, even if he wanted to, because he cannot let go of the wrath. Now, why can't he just let go of the wrath? That's a good question. The best answers that they come up with in the Middle Ages was, there's a guy like Anselm from Canterbury was his name. He said God's honor does not allow him to. I said, oh, God's honor. He's a, what, a knight now? Uh, But in the 1400s, yeah, that made perfectly good sense that God just could not let go of his wrath. It It wouldn't be just, right? So he cannot just forgive you, even if you devote your whole life to charity, even if you do nothing but serve the poor and the needy, even if you die a martyr. It's not enough. You have not paid a sufficient price. So... Our next point, Jesus steps in and takes the punishment for us. So somebody's got to get punished, he gets punished. Jesus says, hey, Dad, take me, beat me up, torture me and kill me. So that way your wrath is satisfied. And uh, so that's where you get this, and they say that literally. You know, one of our hymns, I just caught it the other day, in Christ alone, the wrath was satisfied. I'm like, oh. That's right, that's the, that, that language is really baked into a lot of our, a lot of our stuff. And so, uh, that's where you get it. Now, so how do we get saved then? Our next point, we are saved by believing that the punishment Jesus took was enough punishment to satisfy that wrath. That's what it means. We are not saved by believing in God, we are not saved by asking for forgiveness. We are not saved by changing our lives. We are saved by believing that the punishment Jesus took was a sufficient enough punishment to satisfy all that wrath. That's it. The wrath has to be dumped on something. It cannot be let go, it must be dumped. And I, I remember this, this bugged me like crazy. This used to bug me like crazy when I was uh, Younger, because I, I, you know, again, when I first discovered this, uh, Martin Luther, he believed it, Philip Melanchthon believed it, as you know, as a Lutheran, and I'm reading through Lutheran doctrine, and I discovered that the way they understood it is that one is saved simply by trusting that the sacrifice Jesus made was sufficient sacrifice to propitiate the wrath, and that you cannot propitiate wrath with good works works don't propitiate wrath only grace propitiates wrath but there's no getting through the, around the wrath and uh, when i believe that it was kind of disturbing i'm like is that really that's really what we teach and um, you know i i'm a i'm a i'm a parent i'm a dad i got kids they screw up uh i you know i have a dad i screwed up You get mad at your kids, but after a while, you let go of it. You don't punish absolutely every single thing they've done. You know, you don't... I guess maybe some parents believe that. Maybe in the middle, you know, and I can understand for somebody like Luther, in the 1500s, he grew up that way, that every single thing had to have a punishment. But, you know, the truth is, we don't punish for absolutely everything. And I couldn't imagine that I would sit there and go, well, you know, because you stole all the Girl Scout cookies, you know, I'm going to beat you or I'm going to beat one of the neighbor kids. But I'm going to beat someone. Why would I beat the neighbor kid? Well, you know, he's not the one who stole the cookies. But, why, you know, I can't just let go of that? Can we not just forgive? Can, can, can we not let go of anger? I mean, what does that say about it? The whole, the whole thing is so many problems beginning with, and I'll just give you a couple points of what I think are some of the problems with us. As I mentioned before, the word fall and that language of a fall doesn't exist in Genesis. In Genesis, they go from knowing good, not knowing good and evil to knowing good and evil. They go from not being able to be held responsible to being able to be held responsible. It doesn't say they change their behavior. Adam and Eve were probably doing just as much screwing around before as after. The only difference is now they know what they're doing. It wasn't like sin entered the world. It was personal responsibility entered the world. It was knowledge. It was ethical understanding that entered the world. It doesn't say sin. Read it. Two, there's no heaven or hell in the Old Testament. So for the first what? 2,000 years of our faith. No heaven, no hell. Which meant that you're essentially constructing a doctrine that they fell and were destined for hell, but it took 2,000 years for people to discover that there was a hell they were destined to. Um, and so you realize that with a lot of this, what they're doing is they're taking the theory and then they're going back into it. Now, they get a lot of this fall language from the Apostle Paul. He uses that very clearly. He doesn't use it exactly the way classical atonement does, but that's where the language starts with the Apostle Paul. As all fell through Adam, so all, you know, are raised through Christ. But in the Old Testament, there's no heaven and hell. And in the Old Testament, number three, God forgives people for changing their ways. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but uh, in the Old Testament, it's very simple. If you change your ways, then I'll forgive you. That's it. So, and, and if the people sin, God will say, okay, and he'll send a prophet like Jeremiah, where even up until the 11th hour, all right, I know you're doing idolatry and mistreating the poor, but if you change your ways, I'll still turn the Babylonians around. We'll still stop the invasion. You can still be saved even at the absolute last minute if you admit and change your ways. That's all that's required. And then, and then later, after the exile, the prophets will say, yeah, you have paid your price. Now you can go home. But paying the price is you go into exile in this world, and the redemption is you go home in this world. Let me give you a few Bible verses here. I don't want to go too deep down the rabbit hole of uh, trying to proof text because we could do this for a long time, pulling out the verses that support this theory versus the verses that don't. But I'll give you just a few. Isaiah 43, 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will remember. I will not remember your sins. That's it. I blot out transgressions and don't remember sins. That's it. For my own sake. Now, again, you might go, oh, yes, you you know, Jesus is a part of the Trinity, so, okay. Isaiah 40, verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Wow. She received double. And never went to hell. She isn't even dead yet. Now, this is communal, right? It's all of the people. She paid her price. Sins are forgiven. Nobody went to hell and nobody got sacrificed. The next one, Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel uh, and the house of Judah. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more, only if somebody dies first and propitiates my wrath. Oh, wait, doesn't say that. That's it. And you, you realize in the Old Testament that it's very straightforward. And there's pretty much just two big sins that get the people in trouble worshiping other gods, there we go, and mistreating the poor. Those are the big sins that, they, that, that the prophets rail against. And the prophets say over and over, if you get rid of the idols and enact a more socially just policy towards the poor and the needy, then I'll forgive you. That's the Old Testament, which is why I have said before and I've said you know, I will uh, say again, that if you read the Old Testament and you went up through the Gospels and you stopped there, you would not get this classical atonement theory as it is written. I really don't believe you would. There's a leap. It is not a self-evident conclusion based on those texts. You wouldn't have language of fall. You wouldn't have language of wrath you wouldn't have language of dying for sins. All that stuff comes in Paul and those after, but there's a leap there. There's a leap, there's there's concepts that are injected into it. Now you could argue the Holy Spirit came to the Apostle Paul and told him to start using this language and the Holy Spirit came to the writer of Hebrews and told him to use that language. Okay, we could have that debate, but all I'm saying is there's a leap. This theory is not, you you don't get, you know, Old Testament plus Gospels equals substitutionary atonement. You get Old Testament plus Gospels equals God forgives, and then there's a break, and then you jump and go, but wait. All right, let's keep going. Just a few more points here of problems I have. Jesus himself never talks about dying for sins in so many words. That was kind of a revelation to me, but I read all four of the Gospels and Jesus never says, I came to die for sins. Uh, There is one line, one line in Matthew, where he says the Son of Man came to be a ransom for many, and that's it. So what does ransom for many mean? Well, if you're an atonement person, you go, ha ha, I gotcha. Well, yeah, maybe, Um, but that's it. It's the only thing he says. Um, Five. If you believe this, you have to believe, you have to believe that God can't just forgive, that the Lord God can make all the universe with subatomic particles and black holes and galaxy clusters. God has the power to make something out of nothing, but not get rid of wrath. God can make a black hole, but he can't let go of his wrath. Wow. Six, modern people don't believe in hell They don't believe in heaven and they don't believe in a God who can't let go of his anger. So again, you could get into a long debate about this theory. We could sit here and go over verse by verse all the Old Testament verses that that have some sort of language about suffering in someone else's place Uh, We could go to Isaiah 42 and talk about the servant who is bruised for our transgressions, and we can pick all of those apart, but at the end of the day, we are still dealing with a mission field that doesn't believe in heaven or hell or a God who can't let go of wrath. And so, what, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Are you gonna continue to double down on it? Convince people that there's a hell? so that you can convince them Jesus died to get you out of it? You could, plenty, that, that is a strategy that plenty of churches are doing. You could just not talk about it that much, I guess. Um, you know, you could, there are things you could do, but in some ways this has almost become kind of a, like a Rorschach test, right? You can tell someone's political leanings on how comfortable they are with this idea. Are they, do they view god the father sending god the son to die as an act of love or do they tend to see that as the uh, one person called the divine child abuser and if you're in a world that doesn't even believe in sin in a world where most people will say like i'm a good person i don't you know again i don't kick puppies i don't murder and rape people i'm a good person you know i generally follow the red lights you know um so you know, there's not even a sin they need to be saved from. So we have a solution to a problem that they don't have. And Bonhoeffer talked about this before, right? That the church has been so obsessed with trying to uh, trying to fit itself into and fit God into the places where there's this big problem. But secular society has pretty much pushed the whole sin problem right out of their lives. And so now what do you do? How do we speak of redemption. Do we just double down on classical atonement theory? Do we just sit there and convince people, try, you know, try to convince them they're all sinners? You know, Or do we look at something else? Do we take a second look at the Bible and ask ourselves if this one particular constructed system of theory, is it in fact a really what the Bible teaches is it the only thing the bible teaches are there other ways of understanding it or and this is where i'm going to step out on a little bit of thin ice is it possible that paul and those who came after made a little bit of a mistake that that they needed an interpretation of jesus's death that made sense given that Paul had never met Jesus in person. He only met Jesus in a vision. So remember, Paul never heard the Good Samaritan parable or uh, never heard about the woman at the well. All Paul says in all of his letters that he knows about Jesus' life is that he died, he was raised, and he did the Last Supper. So Paul has to make sense of Jesus' death and resurrection knowing nothing about his teachings, nothing about how he lived his life, and how do you explain this death? And how do you explain, then, what do you do about, you know, the, 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 the sin and sacrifice if we can't go to the temple? He's asking lots of questions, but he isn't going back and saying, you know, how can, I, how can we live our lives as ethically as the people in the Good Samaritan story? He's asking, you know, those questions about sin. Is it possible that Paul's interpretation, he made a leap that maybe he shouldn't have made? Now I'm, this is where you step out on thin ice. Now I'm not one of those, I'm not a universalist. That's always the sort of the mushy universalism. Well, we're all saved. That's one answer. That's not where I'm going and that's not where Bonhoeffer's going. So, um, what is redemption then? Do we get the next slide? I think it's 16, Throw up number 16. Redemption then, we're kind of a couple options. Classical atonement is the first one. It's the punishment that gets us out of hell or... Is redemption something that doesn't involve punishment or human sacrifice, but involves making something new again, making something useful, bringing new life to where there isn't? Think of how we use that word in terms of uh, criminals. We'll see somebody, you know, who's committed a crime, and we will ask ourselves, you know, do you think this person can be redeemed? Is this person beyond redemption? Now, when we use that language, what are we, what are we saying? We're saying, basically, can the person who does bad things be transform into a person who doesn't do bad things? There's no, that, that's all this life stuff. You're just you're taking something that is broken and fixing it. I, I don't like using fixing language with people too much. I get, I'm kind of uncomfortable with that. But that's kind of how we talk about it, right? We take an old car, can, it, can this old car be redeemed or do I have to scrap it? It doesn't mean I'm wrathful at the old car and I have to go beat up an old car. It just means, can I fix it? So this is where Bonhoeffer is gonna start going. What, can we understand redemption in this life? In this life, all right. Let's get going, long introduction but I believe context matters, and I've got the time to give you a little context. But if we're gonna talk about redemption and not understand the background of what he's talking to, this is one of the things whenever you read theology, and philosophers do it too, they make all sorts of references to things that if you don't know what they're referring to, you can't understand it. Uh, It's why there's plenty of these books where I would say, don't even bother cracking them open until you've had a graduate course, not because it's necessarily conceptually so hard, but that they keep referring to stuff, you know? You read a philosopher and he goes, huh, well, clearly that's a synthetic a priori construct. You know, and everyone else will go, that's a what? Um, well, then you gotta go back and read Kant. And then you go, oh, yeah. That's kind of what Bonhoeffer's doing. That's why I gave you some background. Let's get going. Uh, slide 17, here we are back in the letters. He's picking up the letter, writing to Eberhard Betke, sitting in prison, talking about talking about redemption and he says the decisive factor is said to be that in Christianity the hope of resurrection is proclaimed and that the means and oh and that that means the emergence of a genuine religion of redemption the main emphasis now being on the far side of the boundary drawn by death but it seems to me that this is just where the mistake and the danger lie. Redemption now means redemption from cares, distress, fears and longings, from sin and death, in a better world beyond the grave. So is this really the essential character of the proclamation of Christ in the Gospels and by Paul? I should say it is not. The difference between the Christian hope of resurrection and the mythological hope is that the former sends a man back to his life on earth in a wholly new way which is even more sharply defined than it is in the Old Testament. So here we go. If you go back to the beginning, the boundary drawn by death. This is what Bonhoeffer talks about, right? That we understand God as existing and operating only outside of that boundary of death. This is that deism stuff, right? God, God, is outside the God made the world, but God's outside the world, and so he's Bonhoeffer is essentially saying, uh, you know, do you believe that redemption is only about what happens after, and can you read Jesus and even read Paul, and come to the conclusion that when God redeems us, when God makes us better? when God pulls us out of whatever mess we're in, when God, you know, heals our brokenness and forgives our sins, that that only happens, only happens after we die. Or you sometimes get the, I can't remember the fancy theological name for it, but because you know that you're going to get it in the future, it changes your life now. That's somewhat true. Uh, But, you know, the idea that my life is changed now because I know that it's going to be changed later. You know, again, I've preached versions of that. I think that holds true to a point, though. What, he, what Bonhoeffer is arguing is, you know, this isn't really what Jesus and Paul said, if we go back and look at them, and that it isn't inauthentic and it isn't, you know, inventing a new theology to meet customer demand in the secular world, that Jesus and Paul really talked about God improving our lives today in the here and now, redeeming us today making us better today that it's not just about what happens beyond the grave because the redemption lives on the other side and the world doesn't care about the other side the world ain't going to care about what we are our redemption today right let's look at that there's one verse I, I do have to look at that one verse from paul in romans five uh and this will be the last time i uh jump into a verse because again There's only so much time, but here we go. Romans five, verse eight. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. There you go, right? If you wanna argue the classical theory, that line is gold. It's gold plated and platinum crusted with diamonds you know, Um, Christ died for, we have been justified by his blood, not justified by God's choice, but by blood, and we'll be saved through him, right, we're not, there's no other way, saved through him from, interestingly, from the wrath of God, so Jesus saves us from God's wrath, see, this is, you look at this, this is pretty much that classical theory tied up, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, enemies? Holy mackerel, Paul. Enemies of God? Not just God's disappointed in you, but, you know, you are, to, you, you are no better to God than Satan? Wow. Much more surely, having been, recon- having been reconciled, we will be saved by His life. Will be saved? But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Have now received. So you notice the tenses. We got reconciliation, but we will be saved. I mean, this is the theory right there. It's interesting, and this is about as much as Paul goes into it. But he lays it all out. And he lays it out pretty clearly that he doesn't believe, uh, you know, that that salvation is simply a question of Uh, God choosing to forgive, that Jesus' death is about appeasing the wrath. And there's your verse, right? There's your verse. And uh, that's about as close as, like I say, you're going to get. Now, Paul, it's interesting, was not a believer in a three-tiered universe, which, so while he talks about being redeemed from, saved from wrath, uh, he was not a believer in a literal heaven and a literal hell. Uh, And that may throw you off a little bit. He did kind of believe in the heavens, and he did talk about being sort of caught up in the higher levels of heaven in a vision. But if you read Paul's theology carefully, and you really get into 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see that Paul is a believer in what we flippantly, cavalierly nicknamed the dirt nap theory, which is that uh, we die and then are raised that it isn't like when we die, the soul then goes to one part of the afterlife or the other part of the afterlife. That's what probably most of us believe, the three-tiered universe, heaven, earth, hell, and when your soul dies, it goes to the heaven or it goes to the hell. Paul was a believer that when you die, you die. You go to the Sheol that the Old Testament talks about. Uh, And so Paul's language is now we sleep then we will be raised and those who believe will be raised and those who do not believe will just keep sleeping that's it so your choice isn't eternal hellfire or heaven it's death or heaven i think the theological phrase for that is annihilationism boy that's a fun word you're just annihilated at the end you don't burn in hell you're just gone um although reading paul and even revelation I really have come to believe that I think that I think that's a more biblically accurate way. Uh, the hellfire as a separate plane of existence is is kind of a it's not well backed up in the New Testament. But either way, so you have a Paul who believes that yes, even through his blood we are spared from wrath, but the punishment for wrath isn't hellfire. It's just a it's an eternal dirt nap. So um, and again, you know I don't. Stand up at funerals and say, you know, Aunt Edith here is, is, you know, going to have, sit at a dirt nap until Jesus returns again on some, you know, day in the far distant future. Um, I don't say that. I say Edith is with God and whether, you know, because what, a year, a thousand years are like a day with God or whatever. I don't preach that. Uh, but biblically, that's really what Paul teaches. Uh, so, anyways, okay. Getting back to the slide here, getting back to the slide. Um, Christian hope versus mythological hope, here we go. Uh, He talks about the different hopes, right? Uh, With Jesus, Bonhoeffer says, we go back to our lives in this world. And so we encounter Jesus and that encounter changes us and we return back to our lives in the messy real world with a hope, and it is a hope of a resurrection, but it is a hope, but it changes us and makes us different today. And in the Old Testament, uh, the, the change was very, was literally being brought back. The the Old Testament talk about sin is very communal, especially in the prophets. It doesn't tend to pick out particular individuals and oh, you did this sin and you cheated on your wife and you cheated on your taxes. and. It tends to be the people of Israel sin because the people have a bad system of justice or the people committed idolatry. So it's very uh, communal if you look at it that way. In some ways, Bonhoeffer is taking a more individual look at it, right? It's the individual, the individual encounters God and the individual returns uh, more changed. And he says that that change is even more sharply defined than in the Old Testament. So the difference between having encountered God and not encountered God is a greater, the understanding of that is bigger in the New Testament. All right, let's go on. We'll get to the last slide here. And this is the last that Bonhoeffer gets into when he talks about redemption in this particular letter. The Christian, unlike the devotees of the redemption myths, has no last line of escape from the earthly tasks and difficulties into the eternal. But like Christ himself, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He must drink the earthly cup to the dregs, and only in his doing so is the crucified and risen Lord with him. And he crucified and risen with Christ. This world must not be prematurely written off. and this the Old and New Testaments are at one. Redemption myths arise from human boundary experiences, but Christ takes hold of a man at the center of his life. What a great line. We have no last line of escape. And he's kind of, I think he's kind of hinting that, maybe not hinting, being maybe more obvious, that a redemption understanding that's all about pulling me out of the hell afterlife has very little to do with this life and can very quickly lead to an attitude of this whole world is going to hell why bother right why bother trying to make it better why bother sacrificing myself for the poor why bother right giving things up that I like for the sake of the planet, why bother leaving that redwood standing? It's all gonna get burned up in the rapture, anyways. And you'll regret if you left that redwood standing when you coulda cut it and had a job. And when Jesus comes again and you're staring at that redwood, you go, "Oh, I shoulda cut it down. Now I don't get any profits off that redwood." I mean, that attitude is there. That attitude was there. What was it James Watt? Was former Secretary of the Interior used to drive three-wheelers on? Uh, Yellowstone hot pots and leave tire tracks that were permanent and they'd say you know uh, why are you doing this he'd go well, Jesus is coming again parks are for the people why should we not enjoy the parks now because Jesus is coming again and I'd say oh and you know when he's coming again you know the day or the hour the Jesus who said you won't know the day or the hour Or will Jesus come and we'll be living in a dystopian hellscape because he takes a couple more thousand years and we have nothing left. But this is that kind of attitude. If redemption is about getting me out of the hell in an afterlife, once I realize that I'm out of that hell in that afterlife, I'm set, why bother? And Bonhoeffer, this is his, this is the, reality that he's looking at is a lot of Christians are looking at literal hell going on in World War II and they ain't doing nothing about it. They're contented with their heaven after and they're not, and they're not following Christ to the cross. And this is part of what that atonement theory does. It makes the cross into a vicarious thing. He died on the cross, so I don't have to. I don't have to work out my own redemption here on this earth. I don't have to go be a martyr. I don't have to go out to the Amazon and block the loggers slaughtering the rainforests. I don't have to. I don't have to go and feed the refugees knowing that I could get kidnapped doing it. I don't have to put myself at risk. Jesus did it for me. And uh, vicarious morality... uh, Quickly leads to real slovenly behavior. If you've ever been a pastor in traditional Christianity, you'll you'll remember a, a little story. When I was uh, a lot younger, me and a bunch of kids, we got together on the playground and uh, we pushed this kid down and scraped her knees on the ground. It was an absolutely horrible thing we did. No long-lasting damage. She forgave me years later, but um, what we did was horrible. It was mean. Uh, But what was interesting was people would call, the parents would call, and they'd call my parents, and, well, how could your son do this? You're a pastor. And he's like, well, the others did it too. Yeah, but you're a pastor. You're moral, so I don't have to be, right? Pastor, why are you drinking? Dude, your truck has got a case in it. Yeah, but you're the pastor. Pastor, I, I I heard, I saw your date over at your house past midnight. Are you having sex, Pastor? Dude, you've been living with your girlfriend for 14 years, but you're the pastor. And you realize what this is that vicarious morality stuff. Maybe that's part of what drove me to this whole investigation is that vicarious morality leads to judgmentalism and and the exact opposite of what it's supposed to be, which is instead of me choosing to embrace the cross of Jesus here in this world today as somebody who is redeemed and who is called to redeem this world, I point to somebody else and go, he did it for me. Oh, thank God. Isn't that great? He did it for me so I don't have to. He loved the sinners and tax collectors, so I don't have to. And that's what redemption myths beyond the grave do. That's the effect that they have. Whether that's in, I don't think that's what Paul intended at all when he wrote Romans 5, but that's kind of where it's led to. It has led to a very much a theology of not focusing on on me carrying my cross to redeem, to make better the world today, but has led to me looking at the world and going, eh, let it go. And so he gets some of the language here. He, gets, he says he must drink the earthly cup to the dregs. If you go through the Old Testament, that language is used in the prophets a lot. I will pour out, God says, the cup of my wrath. You will have to drink the cup of wrath. And he uses that, that wrath language very clearly. But the cup of wrath is poured out usually through something that happens in that life. The Babylonians will ransack Jerusalem. That's God pouring out his cup of wrath. And so Jesus, when before, the night before he's crucified, he says, Lord, if you wanna take this cup away from me, he isn't literally meaning the cup that he's holding the wine, and he's talking about taking that cup that he's using that language of a cup of wrath that he himself is going to take. But he doesn't say, take this cup away from me because carrying this cup for the sins of all the people He doesn't doesn't actually say that. But is it possible, and I'll throw out even some more ways, is it possible that one can die for others and it doesn't have to involve a transaction? That somebody can be punished for other people's sins and it isn't about a a heavenly transaction, it's just something that happens in this world. That's something that happened with all the prophets. They stood up to power, they proclaimed justice, they criticized the kings, and they were killed for it. Why were they killed? Because the people preferred their sins. They died for their sins. Right? The prophet died to make the world a better place. The prophet died to save the people, to get the people to change their ways. You can use that language of dying for sins, and you can use that language of God's wrath and it doesn't necessarily have to imply this sort of heavenly transaction of the angry father that must punish someone. We die for, uh, we, we suffer for other people's sins all the time, right? I think of all the, you know, I think of the third world children, you know, working away in sweatshops and mines and how uh, there really is a sin involved in that. Uh, and it's not a sin that, you know, it's not a sin that involves having a dirty thought or looking at a dirty picture on the Internet. Uh, it's a sin that involves getting, you know, wasting resources and living luxuriously at the expense of others. And that is a sin. And, you know, those kids who work themselves to the bone and get cancer in the third world mine so that I can have an iPhone, they died for my sins it doesn't mean that anybody's wrath was perpetuated it means that someone sinned and someone died for it and uh, how many of us you know that make it if i was more of an artist maybe that would i'd do it draw a peruvian child minor on a cross to remind us that jesus's uh, death on the cross should be a conviction for all of us in how we live our lives and the choices we make and the systems we're involved in and the politics we support and the lifestyles we live instead of all being about a heavenly transaction and again when you look at jesus he doesn't use the transaction language you know he definitely feels like he's going to be punished because of what everyone else is doing and in some ways maybe he did die for the sins uh you know the priests will specifically say that you know it's better that one man die than the whole country be punished but what he means by that is it's better we kill off this Messiah than Rome come and kill us all, which is exactly how it was in the Old Testament, right? We'll kill off the fake Messiah to save us all from Rome's wrath. But even the priests who performed animal sacrifices every day only used Old Testament prophet language to understand that, right? Uh, the the one person who has to die so that uh, all of us can live, the kind of the scapegoat idea. But the scapegoat idea has more to do with appeasing the wrath of the mob than appeasing a heavenly wrath. So there's a lot of directions you can go with this. Uh, And I, you know, of course, I resonate with what Bonhoeffer says a lot, and as if you didn't tell. And, uh, you know, I I think his question that he asked in the 40s is as relevant today, which is, we need to think about talking about redemption as something that involves making good the rough parts of the life we live today. And that redemption is something in the center of our lives uh, that centers our lives, that becomes the center of our lives, not something that is just about what happens after. And, uh, And what does that mean? And what does that mean for our church and our faith? Uh, probably means a lot if you're willing to unpack it. So, I will leave you there. Uh, thank yous, thanks for tuning in. Give me a message if you got more questions or you want to dig deeper into this. As always, just don't be a troll, and I'll be glappy, uh, glappy, glad and happy to get back to you. Uh, have a great week. God bless.